this morning. As I read along, remember that these are the words of the Lord. Then there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now there were those who were saying, We, with our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who were saying, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who were saying, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. But now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into subjugation. And we have no power in our hands to help, and our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted within my own heart and contended with the nobles and the officials and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. And now you would also sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Then they were silent. I could not find a word to say. And I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my young men are lending them money and grain. Please let us forsake this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you are saying. So I called the priests and I made them swear that they would do according to this word. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not establish this word. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised Yahweh. Then the people did according to this word. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, as Daniel prayed earlier, we need your Holy Spirit at every moment through the service. And so we come before you now acknowledging that we need him here. We need to understand the word rightly. It needs to be preached rightly. And so we are all dependent on the spirit of Jesus Christ in us to accomplish this great task and help us during this hour where our need is met in you through your word. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, beloved, this 
last Saturday, not yesterday, but the week before, um, at our elders' training, the men had a brief discussion about how we practice communion here at Christ the King. You know, the longest passage dealing with the topic of communion in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 11. It's also the only passage in the New Testament to mention the name, the Lord's Supper. Paul mentions it twice in that passage. The conversation that we were having as brothers at the elder training centered on the fact that in this chapter, Paul viewed the supper as more than just the elements of bread and wine. Of course, those are to be included in the supper. But the biblical perspective is that the Lord's Supper encompassed the entire fellowship meal that they were having together. I mentioned to the newer covenant members present that before we had the space restrictions for our fellowship hall that we have here right now, we practiced communion during the lunch hour, and we would do that because we were all together and because of the restrictions, we can't do that currently, which is why we practice it at the end of the service. We hope to go back to this practice, by God's grace, um, when we have a bigger fellowship area. The reason I bring up 1 Corinthians 11 this morning is we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 5, and what looks like it has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper is the interesting thing about Paul's commands in 1 Corinthians 11 is that he wasn't really talking a lot about the Lord's Supper there, at least not in the way that we think that he was. It wasn't written to provide a liturgy for churches to follow, do this, present this bread, then say these words. That's not the reason that he wrote 1 Corinthians 11, the second half of that chapter. The reason that he wrote it is because the church in Corinth was divided against one another. There was one group eating all the food. There was one group not getting any food. And so he says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk and rebukes them for their factious behavior. And even beyond that, God himself entered into that church situation and disciplined the church for their factiousness himself by allowing people to get sick and some to even die, Paul says. And that happened in a new covenant church. So much for the God of the New Testament being this really nice guy who overlooks all this bad stuff that we do. Well, Paul's solution was for those who were coming off their hangover, if you will, they needed to repent of their divisive behavior and consider the true meaning of the table, the place where Christ's family sits down to have a meal together. That's the true meaning behind the table. It's our co Communion. We're, we're communing together. Last week in the sermon, I mentioned the big stick of church authority and how the local church must, when necessary, exercise her use of the defensive weaponry that Christ has left to her. And in this morning's text, we have kind of a sequel to that, a part two to last week. Nehemiah had all the weapons that you could dream of to defend his people from trouble without his congregation, from outside. But what would he do when the enemy was already within the gates? Or perhaps we might say in the case of this morning's text, the enemy was already in the hearts 
of his own people. That big stick of congregational authority grounded on the word of God would be his only option to restore the unity or the communion of the kingdom of God among them. And if there is division in our midst, beloved, and repentance isn't sought, it will also be our only option as well. Well, let's take a look at this section of scripture this morning. I want to divide it into three different groupings. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 initially at this outcry that happens. Nehemiah and his team have effectively doused the external pressure of the enemies of God, but now a new problem arises. Internal pressure has been heating to a boil perhaps for some time. In verse 1, the trouble becomes audible. It becomes noticeable. There was an outcry amongst the people, the LSB says. The Hebrew word for outcry has root meanings to shriek. So this was a loud cry that came to Nehemiah. It wasn't a subtle complaint. And these folks were about to group themselves together into a mob. Notice also that the women are mentioned in this verse. That's a rarity in Nehemiah. This is likely due to the fact that the women would have been tending the children in the homes and the fields while their men were on construction duty, and they were acutely affected by what was happening in the congregation and how it was affecting those households and fields and children. So what's the issue here? What's causing this kitchen fire, if you'll allow me to say it that way? There are three groups that come forward to Nehemiah and cry foul. You'll see that repeated phrase in your text. Now there were those who were saying, and then there were those who were saying, and also there were those who were saying. So we've probably got three different groups of people who are experiencing three different kinds of injustices going on in the congregation. And I want to call these the poor, the debtors, and the taxed. The poor, the debtors, and the taxed. Let's look first in verse 2 at the poor. First, you have this large group of people with tons of kids and no food. Tons of kids and no food. This first group was likely the poorest of all. They didn't have any assets to barter with which to feed their families. They come forward and they say, we've got a lot of kids and we don't have any way to feed them. You've got to help. Nehemiah, we've got a problem. Those of you with large households, I'm sure, can sympathize. There's this mathematical phenomenon that happens when you start having more and more children, that when you add children numerically, the food that you have to provide multiplies. I, one of our engineer folks can help me figure that one out sometime. Their request, of course, wasn't an unreasonable one. Food is pretty important. I read one commentator this week who quipped, after all, they can't eat the wall. Well... The debtors, let's look in verse 3 at the next group. These are the people who were landowners. So they're not so poor that they don't have anything to barter with which to get food. They, they're the ones who own land. They're in a different tax bracket as the first group. But they're also coming up short because at the same time that the wall's being built and the enemies are surrounding, if things could get worse, there's a famine. And that famine could be some lingering judgment from the congregation's neglect of 
the work on the temple. You remember that Haggai prophesied to the people during the days of Ezra, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. That's from Haggai chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The debtor's solution to their problem was to mortgage. The Hebrew literally means to pledge or exchange or barter with their property. And they did this with others in the congregation in order to procure the necessary food so that they could continue building and get this project done. This is, of course, though, the beginning of the end. Any good financial analyst will tell you that getting out of debt by creating more debt is usually the first stage in a financial death spiral. Well, the last group, the taxed, mentioned in verse 4, are those who had land, they had property. The Bible says they had vineyards, they had olive orchards. These folks could have been the most wealthy of the bunch. But the king of Persia had inherited and he had perpetuated a produce tax, if you will, on the yields of his provinces. So everything a farmer gleaned in a year had a tax on it. In a bad year with low yields and no reserves to sell at the market, the taxed had no savings to pay their fair share. They had to feed their families. They didn't have the reserves to spend, or excuse me, to sell at the market and then give to the Persian government. And so they're in a bad situation as well. And, and this financial burden wouldn't have affected the first two groups, but this last group, likely the wealthiest, was in a pinch. Some food shortages, famine, debts, taxes, and unfortunately, as you see, it gets even worse than that. Though our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, this last group says, and our children is as their children, it's almost an insult because they're saying, look, we normally live really well off, but now we're as bad as group number one. We're poor, and we have no way out of this mess that we're in. This group had it so bad that their only option was to sell their own children into slavery to pay their tax burden. And notice how the daughter's are mentioned twice. This is intentional. The word subjugation in the LSB is, as you might have guessed, a loaded term. It has sexual overtones. It carries the meaning in the Hebrew of being pressed or dominated. What did all these groups have in common? There was absolutely nothing they could do about their poverty. They were in a pinch, and there was absolutely nothing that they could do. Now imagine yourself for just a minute as Nehemiah. And you've got one group that comes forward and says, I got a problem and I have no solution for it. And then you've got the next group who comes forward and says, well, we've got a different problem and ours is worse. And then you've got the third group who comes forward and says, no, like we're selling our children into slavery. We've got the worst problem. And, and you, 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 you want to fault them for selling their children into slavery, but if they got rid of their property and they had no way to work their children out of slavery, then they were in an even worse situation. 
So in their minds, well, this is the best that I can do because I can't just go borrow from the government, which is what we often do in our context. The government hands out money left and right. They had no options. So I'm either selling my children now or I'm selling them later and I may never get them back. That was the thought that went into what they decided to do. In addition to the famine, I mentioned several weeks ago the surrounding hostility of enemy nations. It put the kibosh on a lot of the local commercialism. There wasn't the trading that was going on, so the food was definitely short. We can make a pretty good guess that the Jews were likely having trouble getting supplies in addition to food from the usual sources. And the strict working conditions that Nehemiah imposed on the wall workers, remember he told them last week, we're going to sleep on site, we're not going to go home, uh, have time to work in our fields, we're going to sleep here on the job, then we're going to get back up and start working again the next day. It made tending to the necessities of life an even greater challenge. Solomon likely sums up the situation better than anyone else. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Before we look at this next section of text and we turn to who's responsible, who are the culprits behind these wrongs, consider God's bringing about this moment of significant need in the life of the people of Israel. Absolute poverty. And it's not a good thing either. Praise Jesus that there will not be any poverty in the new heavens and the new earth. I want to stop and ask a question this morning. Where does poverty come from? It's a horrible thing. We don't like seeing the pictures of the children in other parts of the world that are starving to death. And we don't like thinking about our own situation where some of you might be financially strapped. Some of you might be going through a poverty of a different kind, relational, health-wise. But where does poverty come from? Those of you who have been with Christ the King for a number of months, have probably heard us say that all things come from the hand of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-controlling God. Now, if that's hard for you to hear and understand, let me read for, for you from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. This is after the birth of her first son, Samuel, in what you might call an Old Testament Magnificat, Hannah worships Yahweh with these words. The Lord brings death and gives life. Hear that. The Lord brings death and gives life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Poverty, beloved, if we can receive it, is from our all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-controlling God. And if you're in Christ today, you should remember that that God is your Father. And if He has in mind poverty in your life, in any area, there's good intentions for it. Without getting into 
any of the reasons behind your helpless condition right now, stop and reflect. Yahweh is in complete control of your trial. Just like he was Job's. He's in complete control. At no time is anything going off the rails and God saying, no, 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 wait, how do I get that back? He planned it. It came out of his infinitely wise mind. That does not make him responsible for evil or injustice. You have to deal with this text. God sends poverty. And the logical question is, well, why am I dealing with the kind that I'm dealing with? Why does God send me the poverty that I have to go through? Why am I going through my trial? Why this affliction? If you look at this morning's text, God sent them poverty to wake the congregation up to what was really going on. Isn't that how God gets the attention of the congregation in Ezra's day? You remember we read that they neglected his house. Haggai prophesied that there would be discipline for their disobedience, and the Lord brought about famine and poverty in order that the people would wake up and repent. That's essentially what's going on in this morning's text. God used the needs of these three groups of people to expose the sin in the camp. He did the same thing in the Corinthian church through the Lord's table. And those who were going and eating all of the food and those who were getting hungry. And he brought about trial and affliction. Now, to those of you who are in a season of need right now, and I know what I'm saying is not popular because we don't like to think about the trials in our lives having a lot of loaded meaning behind them. Well, am I at fault? And then you get this guilty conscience. You start thinking about all of these things. But can I ask you just a basic question, beloved? How does your poverty or affliction or trial fit into the story that God is telling right now? What story is he telling through this situation that you're in Right now, you may be hearing me say, I, I feel like you're about to come out and say, well, poverty really is a good thing, right? So we're going to call what is called evil in the Bible good. No, I'm not going to say that. It's not good, but God promised you, beloved, that in Christ it would work together for your good. He knows you have to pay the bills, He knows you have to be able to buy groceries. He knows you have to have time to be at home with your family so you can disciple your kids. He knows that. These folks were starving, losing their property. Their families were being enslaved. And they had needs. And at no time was God unaware or unconcerned. In the midst of this, wait a sec, but children are being subjected to slavery. At no time had God lost control. At no time was this beyond his reach. At no time did his plan fail for Israel. Not once. Not at one moment. We just sang a few minutes ago the old country hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow. I just want to ask this morning, beloved, do you believe that that is true? Jesus said that the Father has his eye at every moment, at every point since he created the first sparrow... To the end of time, he sees every single one of them and he cares for every one of their needs. A bird that 
we see out of the corner of our eye and pay no attention to. And yet God's eye, Jesus says, is on every single one and their needs. And then he says, and if you put those sparrows all together in a multitude, don't you know that you're more valuable to God than those? If he's got his eye on one bird that's something we ignore out of the corner of our eye, don't you think if he cares for that, he cares for you? Don't you think that he cares for these people here? Jesus once told a story about a boy that was greatly loved by his father. But that boy hated his father and took a bunch of his money and wasted it. So what was it that God used to get his attention? It was poverty. And he, that is the, who we call the prodigal son, was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one gave anything to him. But when he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired men are more than an have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Hunger? Repentance. Which one would you rather have? Your conversion, whether it was an ugly one, some of y'all were saved out of some really bad stuff, or it was an unnoticeable conversion. You can't even point to the day. It was maybe in this group of weeks or this month or even, I don't know, it, I think it was that year when I got baptized, but I've, I've been following Jesus ever since. Whatever your conversion looked like, the fact that you came to Christ was because in some way God made you poor enough to see your need. Daniel mentioned this morning in his pastoral prayer, Blessed are the poor in spirit because they're the ones that get the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise. By the way, we're not the first that God's ever made poor. And no, I'm not talking about your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation. I'm not talking about the Israelites in this passage. Every human being that's ever lived deserved to have everything taken. Everything that you inherited at the moment of your birth, it deserved to be taken away. We deserve to be plundered by God and carted off to hell, every one of us. We deserved his just judgment and wrath to be punished in the fires of judgment for eternity, every one of us. From the moment of my conception and the subsequent indwelling of the sin of Adam in me, at that conception, even a life lived in sustained poverty would be a grace from God beyond my wildest imaginations. But the Son of God, who had lived forever in eternity past, surrounded by the infinite riches of the Trinitarian Godhead, unbound by the trappings of created humanity for my sake and for yours, gave up all that wealth and what? He became poor. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though eternally forever, as far back as our minds could even fathom, being rich... 
Yet for our sake, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. Like it could stop right in the middle of that verse and that would be more than I could. He became poor for us. But no, it goes beyond that. Here's the riches that I've inherited forever and I'm giving those to you. Give me the poverty. That's Jesus. That's our Savior. What has God wrought through making nothing of his son for us? The redemption of the bride of Christ from the beginning of time to the end of time. The impoverishment of the prince led to the rescue of the princess. That's the story that God is writing. And like a good storyteller, God likes to write that theme again and again and again through the course of his grand narrative here in Nehemiah and perhaps right where you sit in your story, in the middle of the narrative that God's writing in your life. I'm not saying that you have to go home today and call your trial good. We can't pay our bills. That's a good thing. I have no money. I have no time to spend with my kids. I have constant pain. Good thing. I'm not saying that you have to call the afflictions of this life good. But you can't look at the gospel of Jesus without seeing that God is able to take what comes to nothing and then raise it to life again. He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a promise. Some of you right now are resisting God's pursuit of you to repent and come to Jesus. He's robbing you of every joy in this world so that you will bow before the Son, the King of Kings. I just encourage you, repent now. Repent now. You may feel poor right now, but if God is pursuing your soul to salvation, He will make you as poor as He needs to in order for you to see the worth of His Son. Some of you are in Christ. And God is using your trial to weaken pride in you. That pride is getting in the way of you calling out for help. We read last week how there was a trumpeter. And if there was a need, blow the trumpet. Don't let your pride get in the way of asking this congregation for help. Tell someone here that you have a need. And it doesn't have to be a financial need either. Let me also say this. In... In the midst of your trial, know this, nothing is wasted. There's not one wasted moment in the universe. Well, I went for two years and I sought this endeavor and then it came to nothing and I blew up with my family and now there's brokenness and, and yet none of that is wasted. What prepared Moses to be the man that he was to shepherd God's people? Was it the years that he spent in Pharaoh's house? Or was it the years that he sat out on a hillside with the sheep? The answer is both. Both of them did. Not a moment was wasted. David sitting out in the field with sheep. After he's been anointed king over God's people. And yet here he is in the fields with the sheep. Because that's my job right now. I'm anointed, but I'm not king yet. And what's he out there doing? 
He's writing psalms that we sing every Sunday. Not a moment is wasted. But, beloved, if you have a need, please come to the pastors and the deacons. I know that many of you say, your schedules are so busy and we don't want to bother you. Can I just say that if we don't have time for our covenant members, there's one of two problems going on. Either there are too many sheep and not enough shepherds, or we as shepherds are disqualified from doing our job because we aren't shepherding the sheep. It's either one of those two things. If you have a physical need, go straight to the deacons. Don't hesitate. Go to them. Ask them. That's what they're here for. They're your servants. Remember, elders primarily caring for the souls of people. The deacons primarily caring for the bodies of people, the physical needs. If your need is material in nature, Chad Rosenberger, Ken Walker, David Garner, and Dustin Haddock are men of God. They've been approved by this congregation as having biblical wisdom. And they don't need to check with the elders to say, oh, we've got a need in this church. How should we meet it? They're there for that purpose. Of course, they can come to us if they want to. But God's given you these men to serve. So please, if the trumpet needs to be blown, if you've got a situation right now, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Come. Come seek us out. Come help. Come, come ask for help. Blow the trumpet. Just like these people in the text this morning did. Let's look at Nehemiah's accusation in verses 6 through 8. At this point, poverty-stricken Jews couldn't work their land to provide for their families. Some were forced to mortgage their fields and vineyards during a famine. Many had taken out loans to pay their taxes and weren't able to make good on those notes. Some of those resorted to selling their children into slavery. Of those daughters sold, some had been exposed to the lusts of their lenders. Together, these trials divided the congregation and threatened to shut down the building of God's kingdom entirely. All this because some, you might say, more fortunate Jews were taking advantage of their less fortunate neighbors. The issue is God's word and the direct violations of God's word. This is from Leviticus 25. Now, if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a sojourner or a foreign resident, that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. Direct violation of the commandments of God. Leviticus 25. A little bit further in Leviticus 25. If a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a foreign resident. And of course, the violations of God's word go beyond the Pentateuch. Solomon spoke of their sin when he quipped in Proverbs, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. The righteous knows the cause of the poor. The wicked does not understand such knowledge. This is exactly the kind of stuff 
that led to the Babylonian captivity in the first place. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the sojourner or the poor and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused. They refused to give heed and turned a stubborn shoulder and dulled their ears from hearing. They made their hearts diamond hard so that they could not hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit by the hands of the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts. As a result, you see this in verse 6, Nehemiah was furious. The Hebrew means he was hot. Literally, that's what it says. He was hot. And wouldn't you be, parents, when's the last time a large contingent of your children came to inform you about that one child who again sinned against all the others, and though you've warned him about this particular fault time and again, in that moment, your pulse doesn't race a little bit. Again? Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, don't sin. Nehemiah's emotions had to be reined in. In verse 7, he tells us that he consulted with his own heart. Clever Hebrew phrase. It basically means after I'd mastered myself. I've got this group that comes to me, then this group, then this group. And I am angry. Give me a second, guys. Let me calm down. He mastered himself. The Christian household and church ought to respond to crisis in this way. Great trial can lead to a feeling of being overwhelmed, but that has to be followed by the mastery of self. Paul says to the Galatian church, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. He goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, then why not keep in step with the Spirit? Keep up. Once he got his head on straight, Nehemiah pulled out the big stick the authority of the whole congregation. In verse 7, you see he called a great assembly. The legacy standard says that he brought charges. And you should hear those as legal charges too. We're not talking about just sins addressed here. We're talking about crimes. These people were in big trouble. This wasn't going to take place in a Persian court, however. The resolution of the trouble inside God's house was going to come from inside the pages of God's law. He makes a clear reference in this verse to Leviticus 25:36. It's also referencing Exodus 22 when he says, "You are exacting interest each from his brother." And he presses them further. He exposes the extent of their sin. He mentions the number of Jews who had been enslaved to foreign nations, probably Persian or other neighboring peoples. And that in the midst of the rebuilding process, in the midst of this wall project, the building team had also been working through donation efforts to purchase back Jewish brethren enslaved to foreign nations. And these Jews inside the walls of the kingdom of God had been enslaving their own brothers. They'd been engaged in the, the same activity. 
he concludes the charges by calling their minds to their sin. He says, the thing that you're doing is not good. He admonishes them to fear God, and he offers an appeal that they not bring the reproach of the nations back on God's people. Don't you all realize this is why we went into exile? Don't do this. Now, here's two lessons on handling that big stick that we talked about last week. Firearm safety rules. Two lessons. Number one, never address another's sin in anger. We've spoken about this many times. You can't tell someone that they are in sin if you have not mastered yourself. I had a conversation with a brother this week. This brother's not connected to our church. But it's centered around some issues that we had gone through together in the past, and yet this issue of mastering yourself seemed to me to be at the forefront of the entire congregation, or the entire conversation. He had brought some concerns to his elders at his church about some social justice concerns, the shenanigans that are going on with the whole SJW stuff, and how they're being properly addressed, or his assessment was that they weren't being properly addressed, and, and I agreed with him on that. But his volume, his fervency, and his tempo in the conversation communicated to his elders that he was not in control of himself. He did not have self-mastery. As a result, though he may have had some true things to say, his words were completely dismissed they were coming from a man who, in these elders' mind, was disqualified to be heard because he's not disciplined enough to have self-control. And there are men, women, and even children here today who speak in such a way that unfortunately no one hears them anymore. Your family has developed noise cancellation when you start talking because of the way that you speak. There's an old Chinese proverb that says something to the effect of, he who controls others may be strong, but he who has mastered himself possesses true power. It's a good word, but it's likely copyright infringement because it was Solomon who first said, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his own spirit is better than the man who captures a city. Are you someone who recognizes this tendency to speak angry in another brother or sister at this church? And at this point, you've been unwilling to bring them a loving but honest word? You're afraid to pull out that big stick? Here's something for you to consider. This is point number two. Address one another's sin from the word of God. In order to calmly address your brother or sister's sin, you need three things. Book, chapter, verse. That's all you need. You don't need your opinion. You don't need your gut instinct. You don't need your feeling. Book, chapter, verse. And that's exactly how Nehemiah dealt with the congregation's sin here. Notice he didn't pull his authority card. He was the Persian-appointed governor. You remember that. One might say that Nehemiah checked his privilege. He didn't pull rank on these people. This goes back to what I said last week about pastoral authority versus pastoral control. Pastoral authority is when your elders direct you by standing on the word of God. 
We bring the word of God to bear on a situation. It's the word of God alone that binds the conscience. Pastoral control is when we pull rank on you to get you to do what we say. For example, if you come to Jeremy or Daniel or myself and you want to ask about a vacation trip to New Orleans, we have no right on preferential grounds or our feeling or our mood to tell you that you are prohibited from going. But if you tell us that you are most looking forward to perusing Bourbon Street late in the night with your wife and children in tow, or even by yourself for that matter, you better believe that we're going to pull out the Bible and appeal to you to reconsider. Not a good idea. And this goes beyond the elders. The church was given the keys to the kingdom. There are people who just have this tendency to be controlling, even without having a place of authority. None of us should be able to go to anyone else and say, no, you can't do this without scriptural grounds to back it up. We need the Bible. We need the Word of God. It's the Word of God alone that binds the consciences of men. Well, in these final four verses, verses 10 through 13, let's look at the solution that Nehemiah provides. His proposal is sweeping and covers every one of the accusations of the afflicted. What's interesting to me, most interesting of all, in verse 10, he leads with his own sin. He says, And likewise I, my brothers, and my young men, are lending them, uses the term lending, he's expecting interest, Lending them money and grain. Listen to what he says. Please let us, all of us together, repent of the usury. Let's forsake it. He says, I'm guilty too. I've been doing this, even to a small extent. He didn't say he'd been taking people's fields or vineyards or enslaving children. But he said, I've been involved in this. He wasn't seizing the property, but he did lend grain to the poor. And he says, let us forsake this usury. He comes right out and admits it. If necessary, beloved, be the first to repent. Jesus says the same thing. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I would like to encourage the children in the room to put this into practice. Kids, how often do you come to your mom or dad with an accusation or complaint about a sibling? Even if it's a legitimate charge. He hit me below the belt. She threw a hanger at me and then told me I'm ugly. I know nobody in this church ever says stuff like that. But how often... Teenagers, kids, like seriously, how often are those unprovoked instances? If you sinned, lead with your sin when seeking restoration. Notice how often this week, if you'll do that, it puts out the fires in your home and leads to fellowship with your brothers and sisters. One additional note here, this is for everyone, not just the kids. Don't confess things that you didn't do. It is a sin to lie. And no one ever built a healthy marriage or home on lies, even those told with the best of intentions. Maybe I'll 
act like I sinned, and that'll make them kind of come towards me a little bit. Don't do it. In verse 11, Nehemiah instructs them to give back all that they had taken from their brothers. And in verse 12, the people not only agree with him to return these things, but they give their word that they will erase the thought of future payment from their minds. We will give it back, and we will require nothing from them. Forgiveness does not come with strings attached. It goes all the way down. Every day you ask God to forgive you in the same way that he sees you forgive others. Are you interested in standing before the throne of grace and Jesus informing you that because of your partial forgiveness in this life, there are additional hurdles to jump through for your forgiveness in the next. You see then that the priests are summoned, likely serving as those who witness the oath taken by the whole congregation, and Nehemiah makes them all take the oath. Then he concludes the public assembly by a display of what God will do to those who do not follow through with repentance and obedience. And it's reminiscent of Jesus' words of the sending out of the disciples. He says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you leave that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. You can hear Nehemiah's words, so may God shake that person out from his kingdom. There's a timeless truth here. Let every valley be lifted up, Isaiah 40 says. Every mountain and hill will be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. John the Baptist quotes this in regards to the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And beloved, God will use the humility he brings through your valley years to propel God's word forward. But know this, any pride and the exalting of self like a mountain, Jesus will make low and move out of his way so that the gospel can go forth. The poor are going to inherit the kingdom. Let me speak to those of you who are in a season of blessing right now. Are those of you who are in a season of blessing right now and you're withholding things from your brothers and sisters here? Matthew Henry once said, hard times and hard hearts make the poor miserable. Is there a fellow covenant member here who's going through a difficult season and you have hardened your hearts to their needs? John says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? James says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now we often think of needs in terms of physical needs or financial needs, but Consider this next text from Deuteronomy outside the context of merely physical needs. If there is anyone needy among you, Moses says, one of your brothers in any of your gates of the towns in your land which Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your needy brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him Sufficient for his need, whatever he lacks. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. Let me give you three areas to consider 
beyond giving material assistance. You may be called upon to do that. You may be called upon to give materially. But let me give you three areas to consider beyond material benevolence. Number one, time. Here's an area where we all feel like we're in poverty. Are you blessed with a flexible schedule and you're just a really poor manager of your time? Could you free up space on the calendar to serve the body here? Is your inordinate attention to the news or social media or other matters outside of the local context that God's called you to leeching away talents and time that God wants you to use here at Christ the King? Do you say yes to every offer of fellowship, rarely spending one-on-one time with your wife or your kids, or taking your family to another family's home who you don't know very well, but could use your experience or service. The second thing I want to encourage you to consider, your wisdom or your knowledge. Some of you have gifts of wisdom and knowledge in certain areas. Have you considered how you might use those to help covenant members here? Tutoring homeschool students who are behind. Offering your abilities and caring for children to an overloaded mother on a regular basis. None of this is impoverished you... But love always costs something. You've got the time available to do it. You've got the knowledge. It won't impoverish you to do it, but it's going to cost you something. The last one, and the Lord's been speaking to us about this frequently over the last several weeks, is prayer. There's some people here with needs that nobody can solve. It feels to me like God has been pushing us as a congregation more and more to fervent prayers over the last month or so. Ask, seek, knock. Are you putting that emoji on Slack and letting that need slip your mind? Do you say that quick breath prayer? Oh yeah, let me pray for that. Okay, I prayed for you. That's it? Are you saying more than just a few seconds to God about their need? Are there people here who are weary of seeking God for an answer to prayer. They need your help. As Joshua and Aaron lifted the arms of Moses in battle against the Amalekites, they need you to lift their hands in prayer to see complete victory over their trial. Brothers and sisters, whatever it is that God is revealing to you that you have been holding out on your brothers and sisters here, have no fear of your sin, but repent of it, and fear God and do the thing that he is giving you to do. Those needy among us are, whether we hear it or not, crying out for help. I'll conclude this message by saying, I think one of the biggest reasons that we don't give is because we imagine that nobody else's problem is as big as ours. Let me ask you, were the privileged Jews in this story not also surrounded by hostile nations on every side? Were some of them considering taking a little extra hedge in the lending so they could protect their own families? Did they overlook the enslavement of their brothers by reasoning that, well, it would be better off if they were a slave in my service than get sold to the nations? Now, I'm not justifying what they did. 
But we often are the privileged ones, and yet we think nobody's got it as bad as I do, so I can't serve. I can't give. I can't help the needy. Each of these excuses that we use can be given to justify not serving the body as God commanded. But brothers and sisters, I'll tell you that I've had to repent of this a bunch over the last several months. My stomach hurts. My face itches. People don't understand how hard it is. I can't meet with so-and-so today. And even beyond those things in our church... My wife still needs a husband. My children need their dad. And Jesus is still building a kingdom. If the job site of my heart has too much pride, too many mountains, Jesus is going to level them so that the gospel can go forth through me. He is. He promised me that. And he promised you that. If there's disunity here, the fires of affliction will bring it to light. So we, by God's grace and through his spirit, put it to death together. And so we can be in fellowship with one another because the gospel will go forth through Christ the King to the glory and praise of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in our own ways you have brought each of us through seasons, perhaps we are in seasons of poverty. We know that poverty itself is not a good thing, but you are using it for our good. You are telling a greater story. You are bringing about the repentance of others through our poverty. You are showing us our own need for Christ and our own need for repentance or squashing our pride so that the gospel can go forth more effectively through us. Father, I pray that you would help these, your sheep, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with eyes fixed on Jesus, to see all the crooked ways made straight, and all the valleys raised up, and all the mountains made low, so that your kingdom can be built. And if there is disunity in any way, would you give us the courage to deal with it? First, confessing our own sin if we've been involved. And then beyond that, encouraging our exhorting our brothers and sisters from the word of God that we might all grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. We trust that you'll do this because you promised us that you will. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.